We're going to be back in John's Gospel this morning, back in chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, please turn over there. And again, let me say again, if you don't have a Bible this morning, we've got Bibles for you. They're uh, at the center aisle on the floor under the chair. Um, and, and those are our gifts to you. Take it, please. You'd make us very happy if you would take that home with you if you don't have a copy and read it and then come talk to us about what you read. We'd love the chance to, to help you understand what you find there. We're going to be in John chapter 2. John is a book about Jesus, about his life and his teachings meant to introduce us to him. But even more than that, we were, we were told in his sort of thesis statement for his book, it's meant to convince us that we can trust him with our lives, to convince us that he is the one that we need now, all of us, knowing from our own experience we, we don't have what we need, can look to him to find it, that he's the Christ or the Deliverer, the Savior. Every story that's told is, to, is told towards that end, towards convincing us that we can trust in Jesus. And that holds true for the story we're going to look at this morning. This one is a story that's meant to help us see how Jesus came to give us or make possible for us the very thing we were made to enjoy. He's come to make possible for us the very thing we were made to enjoy. The thing that is the difference between a life of frustration and ineffectiveness, a life of disappointment and dissatisfaction, and a life of fruitfulness and fulfillment and joy, now and forever. The hinge there, the difference, is whether or not we know God. We were made for relationship. So chances are, no matter what you know about Christianity, you know one of the the basic building blocks in the Christian's view of the world is that we were created, that we aren't here by accident, we don't just happen to be here, but that God formed us as humans for a particular purpose. And what the Bible consistently teaches is that the purpose for which he formed us was a relationship with him, one in which he would be glorified because he gets to satisfy us in a way that nothing else can. We were made to enjoy him. But I'm guessing that I'm not the only one for which it's a difficult concept, the knowing of God, enjoying him and knowing him. God is so often abstract. I mean, there's a sense in which he, he actually doesn't just seem abstract. He is abstract for us. That he's invisible to us and can seem more like an idea to us than a person. It can be frustrating even to hear other people talk about knowing God, can't it? To talk about their fellowship with him. And and sometimes it can be tempting just to wonder what it is you're missing. What are they getting that I'm not? I think that's true whether you're a believer this morning or not. If you're just here investigating Christianity, chances are you've heard Christians talk about knowing God and you're wondering what would that even look like to know someone you can't see. But I'm guessing even for, for Christians among you out there, you know what I'm talking about. It can be frustrating, especially if you're not sensing anything, you're not feeling anything. As you read about God and try to engage with him through his word, it can, be, it can be very frustrating to hear people talk about knowing him and talk about fellowship with him and not know what that feels like, not know what that is. The story in, in John today is all about knowing God. That's what I'm going to argue anyway. And I think it's not going to eliminate the struggle to know God. It won't eliminate all the abstraction. But it gets us a little closer to earth. 
We're looking at John's explanation of what Jesus came to do. And the story that we're going to consider today offers a key window into Jesus' purpose, to why he came to earth. He came so that you could know God. So that you could know God in a way that wasn't possible if he had not come. So what we want to do as we unpack the story together is see in Christ, modeled for us, the value of knowing God, uh, sort of look into the, knowing God as the most important, most valuable treasure that you could see, seek after with your life, the one you were made to, 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 to possess and to enjoy. And then we want to look at Jesus as the path to knowing God. Jesus shows us the value of knowing God, but if that's all he did, then we're still left on our own, right, to try to know God. But what the story points us to is that Jesus didn't just show us the value of knowing God and just beat us down with the fact that we don't value him in the way that we should. He actually came to make knowing God possible, to facilitate it, to become himself the path to us knowing God. That's what we want to do today by unpacking the story together. See the value of knowing God and the path knowing God through Jesus. I want to begin by reading the story. Uh, If you would, please stand with me now in honor of God's word while I read. This is chapter 2 of John. I'm going to read verses 13 to 22. This is the word of the Lord. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. The story this morning is set in Jerusalem, so a change of scenery for us. The last couple stories we've looked at were set in Galilee, where Jesus grew up, just north of Jerusalem. He's come down to Jerusalem for the Passover, but anytime you go to Jerusalem, you go up to Jerusalem. It's the way it's always written. Jerusalem was on a hill, but it was also the epicenter of Israel's identity as a people, the, the center of their life, both spiritually and, and nationally, politically. Jesus heads with his disciples to Jerusalem because the Passover has come. It's the feast, the central feast for the people of Israel. The one that celebrates their main deliverance, where they were born as a nation, when God delivered them from slavery in Egypt and brought them into the, to the, towards the promised land. This feast became the sort of organizing feast of their year. One of many, but this one had special significance. Because it pointed to the essential defining moment for them. We, are, we know who we are because we are the ones whom God has delivered by his own strong hand. Jesus is there with Jews from all over that part of the world. See, because this time, at this time, 
Jews were scattered, right? They weren't just living in Israel. There had been a couple of different exiles. Some of them had come home, others hadn't. The Roman world was, at, was, was bustling at this point. There was, it was easier to travel so people could move to other cities in that part of the world to, to get jobs and start new lives. But when Passover rolled around, you had to be in Jerusalem. People would travel from wherever they had scattered to come back to, to Jerusalem for that feast. And the reason, the reason you had to come to Jerusalem for Passover was the temple. The temple was the place that God had set up for meeting with his people. From the beginning, from the time that they left Egypt, God had established physical spaces that would be a picture of the fact that Israel, among all the nations of the world, Israel had God among them. They had access to him. Temples are nothing unique, right? All the ancient peoples had them. In fact, until the Enlightenment, until two or three hundred years ago, Pretty much all people everywhere had temples. Everyone believed that there were places where you could access this power that's above you. Everyone knew that they weren't the ultimate power in the universe. That's, that's a new idea. Peoples all over the world and through the history of the world knew something bigger was out there. And temples were places they would build where they thought they could access that power, where they could meet with it, maybe turn it to their favor if they did things in just the right way. The temple of Israel was the place God had set up. He had specifically designed it. It was a place where they could make sacrifices that acknowledged they had not been what they were, but ultimately, it was a place set up so it would be possible for them to know him. He wanted a people that didn't deserve it to have access to him. The temple was what made that happen. It was a gift of God. It, it, it put God's presence among his people and made relating to him and knowing him possible. It, it was One way to think of it is that it was a physical symbol of God as the greatest treasure of his people. That's why it was such a beautiful building. It's why it was covered in gold and jewelry. It's why every, every element and every dimension was so perfectly chosen by God. It was meant to show that he, among us, access to him, the possibility of knowing him, that's our treasure. That's, who makes us, that's what makes us who we are. That's what it was for anyway. It wasn't about getting favors from God. It was about a relationship with him. Now, Jesus was an observant Jew. He was Jewish in every sense of the word. He followed all the laws. He celebrated all the feasts. So he went to Jerusalem and he went to the temple to celebrate this feast. And what he found when he got there, what he found when he got there was something that sounds a whole lot like pretty much any Eastern bazaar. I don't know if you guys have ever traveled outside of the Western world. Some of the most interesting places to visit if you're outside of the Western Western world are the bazaars, these marketplaces. In one of these marketplaces, you're going to find booths all over, selling everything from sort of rip-off DVDs and uh, coach purses to, you know, pigs that you can have slaughtered and take home with you right there on the spot to fresh produce to... Uh, textiles, and it depends on the country what sort of special things they're going to have in their marketplace, but a little bit of everything. And what's always true of these markets is that it is, they are bustling, they are loud, they are, they are a barrage for the senses, right? For the smells and the sights and the sounds. And that's a lot like what Jesus found. He found oxen, he found sheep and pigeons. He found folks set up to change money. Now, on the, uh, we need to be careful not to assume what they're doing is wrong on the surface of it, right? They were providing a valuable service, actually. Because remember what I've already said. There was Jews scattered all over the Roman world. 
you don't have to drive your own oxen all the way from Rome to Jerusalem. That's a, that makes the trip a lot longer and harder. So it makes sense that you'll be able to just come as you are, and then when you get there, then you buy the sacrifices that you need. The money changers were important too because there were very specific coins that were called for for these sacrifices, for these offerings that the Jews were supposed to give at this feast. And they're coming from all over the world. They had all kinds of different currencies. So they needed someone that could change their money into the right money. You couldn't just take a Roman coin with a picture of the emperor on it and drop that in as an offering. So these guys were providing a, a really important service. Uh, you, you, could even, you could even say that a marketplace like this one that's described is inevitable for this temple. It had to be there. Before this time, though, it was set up outside the temple. It was on the hill uh, called the Mount of Olives, just outside. But here, for convenience, it's been moved straight into the temple itself. You can imagine the outer court of the temple as one of these eastern bazaars with people coming to and fro with the oxen. What do oxen do? Do they moo? Mooing. Sheep bleeding and pigeons cooing. You can imagine the smells of all of their excrement mixed in together. You can imagine the shouts of the people selling their wares, hoping you'll come to their booth and not the guy next door. So if the temple is designed as a place where earth and heaven meet, that's one way to summarize the point of the temple, where heaven comes to earth, where the two intersect, this temple was definitely on the earthy side. There is nothing that we've seen so far in John that prepares us for what happens next. When Jesus finds this marketplace inside the temple, he goes off. He fashions a homemade whip and he goes crazy. You're meant to read it that way. Don't let the familiarity that you might have with this story keep you from seeing. So far, all we've seen is Jesus sort of hanging with people. Come and see what I've got to offer you. Let me tell you something about yourself that you don't know yet. Or Jesus hanging out at a wedding, making the party go longer, right? We've seen Jesus warped, his desire to help out this guy who's running out of wine. We've seen nothing to prepare us for the fury of Jesus making his own whip and going after the people who had turned this temple into a marketplace. He goes after the people and the oxen and the sheep. You can imagine him driving them out. The sound, the stampede that this must have caused. There would not have been just a few oxen. Millions of people came to celebrate this feast, it is projected. There would have been a lot of animals in that temple court. You can imagine the sound and the chaos that must have been unleashed when they started herding out of there. I can just imagine people diving out of the way. You know, you have these huge oxen bearing down and you're not expecting it. People diving every which way. Then he, he goes to the tables and he turns them over. Can you imagine a court full of poor people as coins go flying? What the fights must have looked like over those coins. And then he makes his way over to the guy selling the pigeons. And you can just imagine those guys are shaking in their boots by this point. What's he got for us? He lets them off easy. But in his comment to them, we get the essence of what's going on here. Take these pigeons out of here. You will not make my father's house a house of trade. I don't think the problem, I don't think the problem, the main problem here is that they were ripping people off. It doesn't say anything about them being dishonest. 
Maybe they were, but that isn't the emphasis for John. I don't think the problem is even that they've sort of physically desecrated this sacred space. You know, like one fan base getting really, really upset when another fan base paints their mascot on campus or something. It isn't like a physical desecration of the space. It is that, but I don't think that's the main point here. I don't think that's why Jesus was so mad. It's that house of trade line that cues us in. They had taken a a place that was designed to picture and facilitate Israel's greatest treasure, which was their access to the God who made them and set them apart. Their greatest treasure, their greatest joy, their greatest aim in life was meant to know him, to enjoy him and to know him. And they had taken that place and turned it into a venue for treasuring their own profit. Let me, let, me, let me take you to a different level altogether, actually. I think that, that takes us one step, but I think there's even another layer. Not only were they treasuring their own profit, but they had turned even their relationship with God into a sort of marketplace. See, I think what we see about them and about how they thought of themselves relating to God from the fact that they, that they took their market into the temple is that they had they lost focus on a relationship with God and they had begun to relate to him as the dispenser of favors, as a duty to be checked off of a list. They've come to him because of what they knew they had to do, but at least we can make this as easy as possible for ourselves, right? Let's at least just move the market inside the temple so that we can go there, make the sacrifice we have to, and then get, about, get on with our lives with what we're really after, right? So that this temple thing won't be a distraction from our pursuit of what we really treasure. I think that's what's going on here. It reminded me of, a, of an experience I had with a, a small team from Trinity a couple of years back. We went to India to visit some mi- um, mission partners there. and we, uh, we took a little side trip one day to a really ho- one of their most holy um, cities in Hinduism. Um, it's holy because it's near the mouth of the Ganges River. The Ganges River is one of the oldest river. Uh, well, I mean, all the rivers are really old, but this is one of the oldest civilizations was built along the Ganges River. So one of the first places that humans sort of congregated together and started making civilization was on the Ganges River. And it's always been seen to have a certain kind of power to it, that if you can tap into its power, it'll go well for you. And we were there during one of their most holy festivals surrounding this city and, it, and what it had to offer. And everywhere along the the banks of this river. The whole thing was one gigantic marketplace. There were booths set up for buying everything you could possibly want to buy to engage with the mythology of this river. Candles that you would light and then set adrift in the river. I don't remember remember what the symbolism was for these things. I wish I did. It would be a better illustration if I did, but I I don't. I just remember, remember families taking... Um, taking, uh, I think they were made out of leaves, little bowls with little votive candles in them, and they would set them adrift in the river. People would, uh, people would take, uh, they were selling uh, basically glorified milk jugs so you could take water from the Ganges home with you because it was seen to have special power. Uh, but the, but the, the images burned in my mind of these people, they come here because they know this is something they have to do, but... We've made it really easy for them. Here, right along the banks of this river, you can get everything you want to need in one-stop shop. It's like the 7-Eleven of Ganges mythology. 
And, and then you can go about doing what you really care about, right? Which is trying to make ends meet for your family, put a roof over their head, try to get your kids raised. I think that's what's going on in the temple. Rather than meeting with God, rather than knowing him and relating to him, they turned it into a marketplace. Not just that they were selling things, but that their relationship to God was based on the principles of the market. We'll give you the currency you require from us so that you, we can get our bases covered, you give us what we need, and then we can move about with our lives. I think that's what explains Jesus' anger here, his fury. There's some disconnect almost. If you're reading from the beginning of chapter 2 and you read through his story, the story of him in this wedding, it's just a sweet and warm story of, of him acting in grace and then the next thing you know he's going off on people with a whip and it's and you could I mean you'd be forgiven for seeing that as almost a schizophrenic moment almost a bipolar thing going on here but really if if you understand if you understand the story in the way I'm trying to present it here then what you can see is that Jesus acts differently in Cana at the wedding from the way he acts here in Jerusalem because the two different situations called for, the, for two different responses if he loved one thing fully, finally, and completely. What, what you see, the key here, is that last verse of this little section where Jesus' disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. What makes sense out of the way Jesus reacted in Cana versus the way that he reacted in Jerusalem is that he is governed in both situations by the same all-consuming passion, by the thing that he lives for. And that all-consuming passion for him is access to God, knowing him. Because knowing him is the key to having any joy in this life. That's what the point of the first half of this chapter was. We listened to, if you weren't here last week, you might want to listen to that sermon. It'll help you understand this one better. Unpacking what Jesus did when he turned the water into wine. It was packed with symbolism. And a lot of it was about Jesus' desire to bring joy into our lives. That the wine was symbolic of the richness of sensation that Jesus wants to give to us. And he knows what that takes is getting God into us. He came to get God into your life so that you could know joy that you wouldn't be able to know otherwise. That's what drove him there. Here, same zeal. To say that his, he's consumed by, by zeal for his father's house is to say he's consumed by zeal for people getting God into their life, connecting with him, knowing him. It's the same love. It's just that it looks like warmth and invitation in one passage and it looks like hatred and fury in another passage. And that's not, that's not altogether different from the way love works in us. My love for my boys looks like warmth and affection for them when we're playing together. It looks like hatred for the thought that someone would abuse them. Same underlying love. Different response. Jesus responded one way in 1 to 11, verses 1 to 11, and another in 13 to 22, because he's consumed by one passion. It was his passion for access to God that was constant when his circumstances changed. 
the question that his model poses to us is what passion is yours? What are you consumed by? What is their underlying motive or drive in you that affects how you respond when your circumstances change? I fear that what he exposed in these marketeers by his passion, he exposes also in us. That we're driven, we're consumed by things other than our access to God, than the joy that's found in knowing him. Now, I don't know what it is in you. I know if you're like me, it kind of changes. There's a revolving door of consuming passions. But even one, even say our affection for material things that's just fed in us by everything in our culture can look so different at different times, right? It changes, it changes its face so often that sometimes it can hide what's actually under there. It can be the thing that makes you consumed by the desire for a higher paying job one minute and once you've got it, consumed by a desire for the next house that you dream of. And once you've got that consumed by, you know, the, the car you're about to lease and you trade in your other one, consumed another weekend by the new shoes you want to put on your feet. I don't know. Fill in the blank. What is it, though, that consumes you? This word here means, the, the English translation is perfect for translating the original word. It's like, what eats you up? What is it that just grabs hold of you and won't let go? Where does your mind go when, you're, when you don't have anything else to think about, when you're laying in bed at night or you're driving down the road? What is it that makes you happy when you've got it and sad when you don't? Jesus models for us what it is to be consumed by our access to God, by the joy that comes from knowing him. What is it that's keeping you from that all-consuming zeal? Now, the beautiful thing about this story is that it doesn't stop here. See, I think, at least the way I read it, that if it stops here, it, it just makes me feel guilty. Right? And I'm, just, I, I'm not consumed in the way that Jesus was. And I don't know how to get there. I, I'm virtually certain I can't get there on my own. That much I do know. If the story stops here, then Jesus isn't a savior He's a holy man who shows us what we should be and can't be. The story doesn't stop here. John never stops there. John's purpose, remember, is to get you to trust Jesus as a deliverer, as someone who can give to you what you can't provide to yourself. John's Jesus is always a savior, not just a moral example to follow. He is one who delivers you from yourself as much as from what threatens you on the outside. So this story points us beyond Jesus as a model of what we should be and aren't, to Jesus as the one who gives us what we should be, as the one who makes it possible for us to know God and be consumed by the desire to know him more. That's the rest of the story. Jesus is the path to knowing God. This passage, like last week, is in a sense a sign of things to come, a pointer to what Jesus came to do for us. This comes out in a couple places. It especially, though, comes out in his conversation with Jewish leaders after what he's done. They ask him, it's such a human response here. I was so convicted by the Jewish leader's response. They've just seen Jesus clean house and expose 
uh, treasuring all the things other than what the temple is meant to make them treasure. And rather than, rather than looking in at themselves and seeing where it might be true of them, their response is to deflect, right? How often is that our response? Rather than let something sit and be convicted by it, they say, well, they try to make it about Jesus, right? A lot of times if, if you're challenged by someone, don't we, our natural reaction is to turn it around, make it about them. That's what they do. So who gave you the right to do these signs? What signs do you give us to show us that you can do this, that you have the authority to do this? Jesus' response to them is cryptic as a direct answer, but it is wonderfully life-giving as a sign of what his coming means for those of us who don't have a zeal or a passion for knowing God in the way that we should. Jesus said, Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. It's cryptic, right? They don't know what to do with it. It took 46 years to build this temple, they say. Are you going to build it in three days? You're crazy. But his disciples remembered this. John cues us in on what they knew once Jesus had been raised. That Jesus, just as he does so often through John, he's not talking about what you think he's talking about. He is not talking about this physical building, one that would actually be destroyed just a generation after Christ. He's talking about his body. What he's saying is that you will destroy my body, but that three days later I will raise it up again. He's talking about his death and his resurrection that are the key to us receiving the things God made us to receive. But he's saying something else too. What he's saying about himself and his purpose in coming here, what he's saying that his death and his resurrection accomplish is that now he, Jesus himself, is the temple. Remember what the temple is? The Jewish people, for really any people who have a temple, a temple is an access point where heaven and earth meet, where the powers that are above you come into your life and become accessible to you. And for the Jews, it was a place where God was knowable. And Jesus is saying now, the place where heaven and earth meet because of my death that as a perfect sacrifice got rid of your sin problem and my resurrection that means now and for always I am in the presence of God bringing him to you. Now I am the temple. You come to God through me. That's the claim. Jesus becomes the ultimate sacrifice, one so perfect and complete that the power of death is used up And in his resurrection, he becomes the place where sinners can meet God without any barrier. I wish I had time to explain this more. We don't have time this morning. So I want to point you to Hebrews. It's a letter that was written, really an early Christian sermon, uh, that is all about this idea, about Jesus being the temple, everything fulfilling everything the temple was meant to do. That Jesus is now the place where you meet with God. We actually did a sermon series through Hebrews. All those uh, sermons are on the website. You can use those to help you as you read if you want some more information about it. What I want to do with the few minutes we've got left is try to take what is still an abstract idea, the idea that we can know God. We've gotten a little bit of help now from knowing that we know him through Jesus. Jesus has brought him to us somehow, but we need more help, I think. We need to know what it is to know God through Jesus how does, how does it even make sense to know someone that you can't see and touch? And how can we get there? And we're not going to remove that, com- that complexity this morning. What it is to know God is always going to be a complicated thing. But I want to I take us a few steps down that road, and we'll build on it through the rest of our series in John. I want to I draw out for you a couple of implications here. 
a couple implications of the fact that now Jesus has become the place where we meet God. Here's the first one. We can know God because God has come to us. It sounds simple on the surface. I want to make it a little more complicated and help, help hopefully drive it in a little bit deeper. We can know God because God has come to us. One of the most useful books that I know of on, on the, the possibility and the process for knowing God is a book called Knowing God. There's one on the, on the resource table back here. Um, it's like a dollar, I think, because it it's a used book. Go get it if you don't have it. It was written maybe 30 years ago. I don't know. Maybe 30 or 40 years ago. It's a classic. One of them, I think one of the most important books written, um, Christian books written in, in the 20th century. I really think it's that important. And it's not just about knowing who God is, knowing about him. It's about how to know him in a relational sense. And one of my favorite passages in that book helps me get my mind around what exactly it is to, to know God and why we should be so grateful for the fact that he's come to us in Christ. Packer acknowledges it is a really complicated thing to know God. He says that it's something that isn't going to become less than complex for us. That we should expect it to be complex as as much more complex than knowing another human as knowing another human is more complex than knowing a language. Packer says it Complexity of knowing something, what we mean when we say you know something, really depends on what it is we say we're knowing. So you could say that you um, know the city of Nashville. Often we'll say that. Yeah, I know Nashville. I lived here 10 years. I know Nashville. What we mean by that is we kind of, we know where the good restaurants are. We know where to go to hear music. We know what roads you never under any circumstances want to be driving down. You know it as a subject. And that kind of knowledge just comes from paying attention, from sort of, inspecting it and experiencing it. Then I also say, I know my car. That's a little bit more complicated. To say that I know my car is to say not just that I know its features, but I know some of its peculiarities. You know, I know some of the things that it can't do. I know that its engine is not going to get me across four lanes of traffic in time. So you better just sit and wait. I know it's more complicated still to say that you know a dog. Well, this dog has the ability to interact with you, right? He has a will of some sorts. He has agency. He can surprise you. To say that you know a dog is to say that you not just that you know about him, know what his breed is, but that you know some of his habits, some of his patterns, something of his personality. It's a little bit more complicated. To say that you know another human is even still more complicated because humans can keep secrets, right? So to know another human means not just paying attention to them. It also means that they've got to come to you. It means that you may want to set the stage by being attentive as a listener, by modeling openness, by show, sharing with them things about you. But at some level, if they don't decide to let you in, you're not going to know them. Or as Packer put it, it is they, not we, who decide whether we're going to know them or not. Now, now take it another level. Imagine that the person that you want to know, who really you depend on them to let you in if you're going to know them, imagine that that person is above you in some sense. All humans are created equal. Don't hear me saying that. But some are not really equal, right? Some are better than us in some sense. So maybe, I don't know, it's a well-known academic at a conference that you're going to, and you know that guy does not owe you any time, but you want to meet him 
You want to hand them a copy of your CV or a link to your website. Or, or let's bring this even closer to home. Maybe it's, a, it's, another, it's a, one of the classic old-fashioned Nashville celebrity sightings at Whole Foods or the pharmacy or some such. So let's say you break the, uh, the, the code and you can't resist going up to them and introduce yourself. Knowing a person like that, I don't know who it is for you, Nicole Kidman maybe or Jake Locker, R.A. Dickey. You guys don't even know who those people are, do you? <laughs> so you break the code, you go up to introduce yourself. Knowing such a person is going to be more complicated than knowing, I don't know, anybody else. Because their experience is really different from yours. But also, not just because their experience is really different from yours, it's going to be hard because there's a lot of reason for them not to open up to you. And you might be disappointed if they choose not to open up to you. But honestly, you can't be surprised. You don't deserve it. And you know that. Bela Fleck is on my wish list of celebrity encounters. I don't know if you guys know who he is. He's a banjo player. He's amazing. And I love the banjo. I started playing the banjo last year. I now know about three chords and a song called The Old Gray Goose. <laughs> now, let's say, let's say I see Bela and I approach him, tell him I appreciate his talent, Tell him, believe it or not, I, I play a little banjo myself. <laughs> and at this point, the ball is all in his court, right? It's completely his game at this point. What I should expect is for him to blow me off. But imagine the shift in my perspective if he engages me, if he offers to get together and talk banjo playing, if he lets me in on what it's like to be him what it's like to be famous or to be on the road, what it's like to wish he was better than he is, what it's like to be stuck on that section he's trying to transpose for banjo in one or another Bach concerto, this thing he just can't quite get. His wish that people like the banjo more than they do or his exhaustion with all those old banjo jokes. What if he... What if he, beyond that, suggested that we swing by my place and grab my banjo, head to his studio, because he wants to hear me play. He wants to give me some pointers. What if he not only offers me tips, but wants to know what it's like to be me? What if he wants to know my experience, what it's like to start playing when you're 30, and to play when you don't have a job that has anything to do with music, or when you have kids who would rather pluck the strings themselves and listen to you play? Now, now, such a relationship between the two of us is still going to be complicated by any number of factors. Our experiences are so different. Our patterns of life, our available time. But at least it will be possible, right? Because he will have brought me in. Now, that is only faintly, but still something like what God has done for us in Jesus. In coming to us himself, or in John's language from chapter 1, in the Word, the Word who was God and was with God and through whom all things come into existence, in that Word becoming flesh and pitching his tent, building his temple among us. God has come to us so that we could understand him and know him, enjoy him and be saved by him. Now, knowing God is still not a simple thing. As it's as much more complicated 
again, as I've said, than knowing another human, as knowing a human is more complicated than knowing a dog or knowing a car. It's still going to be different. But it's possible. And it's possible because God has opened himself to us and has drawn near to us in Jesus. Now, that's the first thing I want to say about bringing this down. We can know God because it's, it's possible through Jesus. Here's the last thing. We come to God, we know him through his word. I know that sounds simplistic, but it's still true. The way that we access God through Jesus is to access Jesus through his word. That's where he's left record of himself. That's where he tells us what he's like. It's where he tells us what he's done for us. It's where he makes promises to us. It's where he explains us to ourselves. Jesus is the temple. He is the access point for us with heaven. But he's opened up to us in the Bible. And what we've got to do, this is the last thing I'll say, just a little bit more practical here. What we have to do, I think, to access God through Jesus, through his word, is we've got to come to him in his word as an end in himself and not, and not for some sort of marketplace exchange. Here's what I mean by that. If, if what we're after is a relationship with God, then what we've got to guard in ourselves is coming to his word under the tyranny of the urgent coming to him only because we have this all-consuming need that we think his word might be able to solve for us, right? It's natural to go to his word that way, and it's appropriate to go to his word when life is pressing in on us. But be careful that you don't put his word in the service of your passion for something other than God, and that's possible. I mean, in, our, in our relationship, my wife and I often talk about how um, the struggle, how we need to be better at engaging each other for each other and not just for what we need out of each other. Because we need each other for a lot of things, especially with now having kids. We need each other for for help in any number of areas. And it's easy to let our relationship sort of drift into just getting what we need from each other rather than pursuing a relationship with each other as an end in itself. And the same thing can be true in our relationship with God, that we can come to his word under the tyranny of whatever need we feel at that moment, but not just to try to understand him to try to see better what he's told us about himself and to respond to it in the way that he would want us to, not because we get from him exactly what we need for that moment, but because he's beautiful, because he is the source of joy, a fountain of delight that you can't get anywhere else. The Bible is where God is made visible through Jesus. Jesus' life and teachings make God visible, and that's where they're recorded. So what we got to do is engage with the Bible, come to it carefully, Look to him, study him, ask engaging questions of him. The whole Bible is about him. All of it is about Jesus. And Jesus is where we know God. So come to him in his word. That's the last thing. Father, help us because we don't often come to you as if you were the treasure that your word describes you to be. The psalmist thirsted for you like a deer thirst for water. The psalmist prayed that it was better to be in your courts, in your presence for one day than a thousand days anywhere else. Jesus himself modeled an all-consuming zeal to know you and to have others know you. Forgive us, Father, for our lack of 
interest, for our apathy and our cold-heartedness. Don't hold it against us because of Jesus. Don't hold it against us. And give us, in spite of our rejection of you, time and again, give us, Father, the pleasure, the privilege of knowing you as you are. Thank you for coming to us in Christ. Help us now to come to you through him and to do so from joy and not fear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.